0: I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. We're going to be looking at the 16th chapter of Luke this morning. The 16th chapter of Luke, and we're going to begin with the 19th verse. Please take your Bibles and open them up and keep them open in front of you as we move through the passage together. The Gospel of Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning with the 19th verse. And we're going to study through the 31st verse. Once you've found your place, please look at me so I'll know we're ready to move on. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, this is a parable that some of us have known for a very long time. I pray as Jesus spoke to others this parable that we might now hear him speak to us. Please, Father, bless the preaching, bless the hearing, and bless the application when we leave this place, for we turn this time entirely over to you. Bless us, I pray in Christ's name, amen. The last couple of years of my mother's life, she lived with my brother and his wife and with Linda and I, and she would move back and forth between Florida and South Carolina. And one night we were sitting talking, which we did most evenings with mom, and mom was a very well-read lady, a very talented lady. Uh, I could stand here and tell you about all the things she did that were absolutely amazing. Um, But in our conversation that particular night and I don't even remember the context I just remember saying something about the reality of hell and my mom looked at me and she said there's no such place well my mama was a lifelong Methodist and my mom taught Bible and led prayer groups in her church all of my life and she was looked upon as someone who knew the word well And I said, Mom, your church teaches the existence of hell. And she said, No, son, it does not. If my daddy had been sitting there, that would have been the end of that conversation. That's how I was raised. But daddy had already gone to be with the Lord. So I said, Would you excuse me? And I went upstairs into my study, and I pulled a book off the shelf on Methodist doctrine, published by the Methodists, and I went through the index and I went through the table of contents, and then I went to the section that talked about the end times, and I couldn't find a reference to heaven or hell. I went back downstairs and said, Mom, our Bible teaches about hell. (laughs) I don't know that Mom ever believed in the existence of hell. I met a lot of folks like that. I have, I want you to know, talked with the Methodists, talked again this week with them, with their home office. And they explained to me that in Article 12, and I have a copy of it, that they have a very brief statement that talks about the resurrection of all people and that those who are in the Lord are going to have an eternal blessing and those who are not an eternal punishment. That's what it says. It says no more about it. I have folks that I respect spiritually who do not believe in hell. Some of, and I'm thinking about a couple of very noted Christian leaders in our world today, believe that when a person dies and they die without knowing Christ, that it just ends, that life is over. That they are simply buried and that's the end of it. But for those who know Christ, they would very quickly say, we are raised from the dead as Christ was, and we'll spend eternity in heaven with him. Well, while I respect a great deal of what they write in other areas and say in other areas, my Bible teaches me about the literal existence of hell. I want you to know something. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them for eternal life. Agreed? Sin came into the world and, in a sense, disrupted that plan. It did not change God's intention. So the end result is that when we live this life, we are going to have opportunities that God gives us to accept Christ. And when we die, we are going to live, all of us, for eternity. How about that? Everybody. The question isn't whether we're going to live eternally because that's what God intended and what he intends today. The question is where will you reside? In heaven or in hell? It's going to be one of the two. It can't just end because that was never his plan. So I want to take you to a parable and I'd like you to follow along as I read and let's see what God tells us about heaven and hell. I'm reading from Luke, the 16th chapter, beginning with the 19th verse. Listen very carefully. Our God who loves us is about to talk to us. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus, who laid at his gate, Covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, "'Then I beg you, Father,' that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. May God add his blessing to his word. First, I want to tell you that this parable, and like others, has some folks who read it and say, well, don't take this literally, it's a parable. Take it in symbolic ways. Look at it as a parable about the Jewish church, about the Pharisees, and about the others in that religion. But don't take it literally about heaven and hell. Well, I want you to know I embrace that first position. I also embrace another position because we're about to take it very literally. And I think it's here for that reason. And if it wasn't, I believe God would have told us that. All of this is inspired by him, and it's for us to help us understand. So please understand that. The audience that Jesus was speaking to when he told this parable, his disciples were gathered around. They were learning from him and listening to him and and building up this reserve that they could tap after he was raised from the dead, after the Holy Spirit came on them and gave them the ability to recall these things and to make application. Also, the Pharisees were there, the ones who prided themselves so much on their spiritual position. I'm going to share something. I always get in trouble when I do this because it's not part of what I planned. As I was sitting there this morning listening to the music, I thought to myself, you know, Lord, you've allowed me to do this a long time, and I'm so very grateful and so thankful to be able to preach and lead in worship. And you may take me home this afternoon. And you may take me home five years from now. Or I may get to the point that I don't know I'm up here and I've already asked Linda to come get me when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> to be grateful. Not like the Pharisees. Not to think we're entitled But to know we have been blessed by a rich and bountiful god who really loves us and i'm very grateful to be with you today and you and i need to be grateful about everything well when jesus starts to talk he's talking to his disciples he's talking to the pharisees and he's talking to a multitude of people who gathered around he always drew a crowd and people always listened And in his plan, he was speaking to each one of those groups. And he was seeking to minister to them under the power of his Holy Spirit. So when you start to look at the passage in the 19th verse, he introduces the first character in the parable. And what he does is he starts to talk to us about the rich man. I want you to notice something. In most translations, he says a certain rich man. Not talking about all rich people. This is not a condemnation of being wealthy. What he's doing is saying there was a man who was rich. And he begins to tell us about that rich man. He says that that rich man wore purple all the time. Purple dyed clothing was a sign of royalty. Clothing that's dyed purple is expensive clothing. You know why it was so expensive? Divers would go into the Mediterranean Sea and they would dive down and pick up a particular kind of shell. And they'd bring that shell to the surface and they would harvest the bladder out of that shell. And the fluid that was inside that bladder was purple in color. And they would take that and they'd go ashore and they would use it to dye garments. Well, that whole process was very costly, and consequently, only the very wealthy would wear purple-dyed clothing on special occasions. Not so with this man. This rich man wore expensive clothing, purple, all of the time. Secondly, it says that he wore fine linen. Fine linen is costly today. It's always been costly. What he did, whether he was at home or outside the home, is he dressed and enjoyed the splendor of all of his wealth and found great joy in it. There's a problem with all of that. It's not with having money. You know, you all live in a very affluent place, Hilton Head. I often think to myself, if my daddy were alive, and he's not, Or maybe when I meet him in heaven, he's going to look at me and say, Son, I'm really disappointed in you. And I'm going to say, Why, Dad? And I'm going to know why why before he does it. He's going to say, I thought you were smarter than that. And I say, What are you talking about, Dad? And he's going to say, Son, you paid money for bottled water? (laughs) Pop's not going to get that, folks. The wealthy man, the rich man, had no regard for other folks. His problem was he saw the revenue that he had received and was receiving as something somehow he was entitled to. And folks, none of us are. I don't care how much education you have. I don't care how smart you are. If God didn't give you those abilities and he didn't put you in the position to do it and then encourage you to use those abilities, you would never, none of us would ever have wealth. It's all about him. But this rich man didn't understand that. And he lived for himself. I want to challenge you and I'm challenging myself. I did as I worked on this sermon. Look at what God gives you. Don't feel guilty about it. He's given it to you for a purpose. So don't, for goodness sakes, feel guilty. Just don't be like this certain rich man. Look around. Ask yourself why has God given me the abilities, the talents, and the wealth that He's given me? What does God want me to do with that? It's not all for our consumption, it's not all for us to possess. He certainly doesn't want us to depend on it. Who does he want us to depend on? On him. And now that riches gets in the way of all of that. That's why we're told it's so very hard for a rich person to get to heaven. It's because they start to rely on their own abilities and their own wealth. So what our Lord's doing is he's talking to his disciples and he's saying... Don't you do a trade-off now, you just keep in the path you're on. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you need to stop and look at your life and see what you're doing. And he says to that whole crowd, don't be deceived. Don't think you're going to find happiness out there in the world. That's not where it is. You can't get enough of whatever it is. And it can be stolen and it can rust and it will break. You've learned that, haven't you? So what he's saying is, this man's in big trouble. Then he turns around and he introduces the poor man. man's name's Lazarus. We know a few things about Lazarus. We know that he didn't walk to the gate of the rich man. He was placed there. So he was infirmed. I'm assuming couldn't work. He had sores on him. He didn't have adequate medical care. Most of the world doesn't have anywhere near the medical care that you and I have. He would have eaten the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. This doesn't say that he ever got into the courtyard or into the house or to the table where the rich man sat. This says he was relegated outside the gate he never got invited in but the point is that he was willing to eat crumbs because he was so hungry that's a pretty vivid picture of a man who doesn't have anything his name Lazarus you know what it means God helps me now you look at a poor person you say well how's God helping that poor person? You know one of the great deceptions of our lifetime? Is to think that we don't need help if we have the wherewithal to get through the day. This man had nothing and he was one who depended on God to take care of him. I wonder and I think this to myself on occasion, if all of us were to lose our homes and all of us were to go bankrupt, and all of us had no assets that we could turn to, what effect would that have on our walk with the Lord? In our society, we have tied stuff to our relationship with the Lord, and it just kind of engulfs our whole spiritual being. But if all of that were taken away, who would we be spiritually? I have a friend who on several occasions has said to me, if you walk with the Lord, he'll take care of you and you'll prosper. Well, all of us would listen to a tele-evangelist who is a prosperity gospel preacher and say, that's not right. That link is not there. And it's not. There are a whole lot more people who know Jesus and walk in the Spirit who have nothing in this world then there are people who live with all of the riches in the world. I picture in my mind a mom and her two children opening a gate and letting my wife and I walk into a sand-filled front yard. Nothing in the yard except sand. And I see in the back of the yard a lean-to with a piece of material over the front of it so that you can't see in. And two little children running out with no clothes on at all and running up to a missionary that I was with and throwing their arms around him and they had smiles that would have just made you jump up and down. They were so glad to see that missionary. And the mama came out and she was wearing what I think we call a summer dress and she came out barefooted And she had a smile about that big on her face. I don't think she knew how poor she was because she was rich. She knew Jesus. And she was filled with the Spirit of God. Doesn't that sound foreign to us? Because we're so inundated with stuff. The poor man had nothing. But he was a wealthy man. For obviously he knew Christ. In verse 22, it says both of them died. The fellow who was so very poor, Lazarus, Scripture says that the angels came for him. I love that. When Patty died this weekend, she belonged to God. I am absolutely positive he dispatched an angel before she died. And that angel took her to be with Jesus. That's the promise that you and I have. It's a very real promise. And can you picture Abraham in this case embracing this man with his sores that are now healed, with his hunger that has now been satisfied, and saying, You've arrived, everything's okay. And at the same time, the rich man goes to Hades. And you can hear, as you read through the passage, the torment, the heat, the hurt, the anguish that he experienced. Some would say, well, you know, a loving God wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, a loving God would do that. And he foretells us that he will. He is a loving and wrathful God. He is both. He is a God who hates sin. And he will not allow sin into heaven. That's why Adam and Eve got put out of paradise and out of his presence. None of that's changed. So to be, as some say, in the absence of God is to be in a place of anguish. Can I tell you how I picture hell? I don't have a corner on this, but this is just kind of how I picture it worst day I've ever had can you think of a really bad day you've had I mean one of those that you say that was probably the worst day I ever had well multiply that by 10 or 100 and do it 24 7 no break that's what hell is it's the absolute absence of the grace of God God provides for those who are believers and those who are not believers on this earth. He lets the rain to fall on us. He lets our crops grow. He's a gracious God. He is working in and amongst us. In hell, he is not present. And all of that changes. If you read carefully through the passage, what you'll see is that the rich man, who's not quite so rich now, he can look across and he sees off in the distance this poor man, Lazarus, and he sees him in the bosom of Father Abraham. So he calls out, and this is so revealing, and he says to Father Abraham, Would you send Lazarus over here and let him put his finger in some water and come and touch my parched lips? Can't you almost feel that? Who's he thinking about? Wouldn't it be wonderful he could say, I'm so glad, Lazarus, that you're okay now? I'm so pleased I find joy in the blessing you're receiving. He thinks about himself. And he said, send him here and let me have some relief. Send my servant, the one who's less than I, to take care of me. And Father Abraham says, nope. That's not how this is going to work. When you were in Life on earth, you had everything. Now you have nothing. And the one who had nothing except his faith has everything. Read on a bit more in the passage. Abraham says there's a reality you need to understand. There's a chasm across here. We're on one side of it, you're on the other side, and nobody can come from either side and cross over. You know, there are a lot of folks, you know some of them, maybe you do this, who live life saying, you know, I know I can go ahead and get away with some stuff because I'm not going to die quite yet. And right before I die, or maybe even right after I die, I'll make all this right with God. You know what that chasm gives testimony to? It's over when you die. There's no way to go back and make it right. All the good intentions in the world aren't going to make that happen. Once we enter our eternal state, we are in our eternal state for eternity, never to be changed, never to be reversed. Rich man hears that, and I think he takes it to heart, and he says, Well, Father Abraham, and I can almost hear him saying, Since you're not going to send any water over here for me, and since I can't come over there, would you send Lazarus back to earth, back to the living, to my father's house where my brothers live? And would you have him tell them what's going on so they can repent? And what does Abraham say? Not how it works. We've already given them the teachings that are found in Scripture. They have the teachings of Moses. They have the teachings of the prophets. This is the revealed word of God. It's active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the tool that God has chosen throughout the generations to use to pierce our hearts and to bring us to conviction of our sin and to bring us to the point that humbly we call out and ask Jesus to be our savior. Have you done that? Have you? Forget all the other stuff that's about church. In the privacy of your own heart, have you said, I need you, Jesus. I know what a sinner I am. When you do that, So simply by faith. When you believe that Jesus is the son of God and you believe that he was raised from the dead, Paul tells us in Romans 10, you will be saved. It's so simple. It's a faith act. (coughs) The rich man has a second thought. He said, "We'll send somebody back from the dead and they'll recognize that person coming from the dead and that'll convince them. And Father Abraham says to the rich man, no, that won't work either. It's by faith. It's not by sight. It's by faith. It's by taking the faith that God gives us as an act of grace and letting that faith cause us to accept Jesus as our Savior. One of the first, in fact, the first communicants class I ever taught when I went into the ministry, I had 13 or 14 children in it. I had a little boy who was a little slow. I don't know if that's an appropriate term today. He was a little slow. At the end of the class, and I had taught them a ton of stuff, probably much more than they needed to know, I went to the elders and I said, i got a problem. I said, what's the problem? I said, well, I've got 13 or 14 children. You all have been waiting on me to come like you're waiting on Bill to come. They'd been waiting, and they had this accumulation of young folks. And I said, I've really enjoyed my time with them. They've been there every session. I've taught them all kinds of stuff, and I recommend one of them for membership. And one of the elders who had a child in the group said, which one? And it was one of his children. The little boy, who was a little slow, knew Jesus by faith, and it was so obvious, and the others knew him by intellect, and you know those elders stood with me, and we received one child out of that group, and in time, by God's grace, the others came, but the little boy who came by faith, that's what it's all about, it's about faith. You know, you and I live in the age of redemption. It's not going to happen later. It happens right now. So when you look at other people, know that they're living in the age of redemption also. And I promise you, the federal government, our schools, the PTA, the civic clubs, they're not going to tell the people around them who are living in this age about Jesus. Guess who's supposed to do that? You know, don't you? That's our job. We're the church. And what we ought to do is take so very seriously what Jesus is saying and know that there is a heaven and there is a hell And there is going to come a part, a point in life where life will end and we're going to spend eternity in one or the other. And God says to us through this and all of Scripture, you folks who have been blessed by me, be a blessing to somebody else. Look for opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Folks, can you hear that with your heart? Have a passion. For telling others about Jesus. And start today. Start in the restaurant you're going to go to, or start when you talk to someone on the phone this afternoon. Don't be bashful about the gospel. Work with the Lord and let Him work with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your teaching, and thank you for helping us understand. Thanks, Lord, for never changing the plan, for always doing what you say you're going to do. Thank you that there is a heaven, and that we who know Jesus are going to be embraced by him when the angel takes us home. But Lord, help us also to feel some responsibility in a healthy way. For those who are walking around next to us and help us to be a witness father I thank you on behalf of all of us for investing so much in us and giving us so many opportunities thank you father in Jesus name amen